0: Hello, and welcome to the May 4th, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine Highlights podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, to let you know about new articles you'll find if you go to annals.org. The first new article I'll mention reports a prospective study that showed promise for serial antigen testing to be an effective strategy to support infection control in nursing homes experiencing a SARS-CoV-2 outbreak. While less sensitive than RT-PCR, the authors say that antigen tests perform well when it counts. When someone is infectious and at risk for spreading the virus, an action needs to happen quickly. Serial facility-wide testing for SARS-CoV-2 can help identify cases in outbreak settings, allowing for implementation of transmission-based precautions and infection prevention and control strategies. RT-PCR testing performed in a laboratory has the highest sensitivity but results take time complicating rapid implementation of appropriate quarantine and isolation precautions. Antigen tests are easy to do and produce results in minutes, facilitating rapid action. However, performance data are lacking, especially when used in asymptomatic people. Researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention studied 532 specimens from 234 available residents and staff at a nursing home with a SARS-CoV-2 outbreak to evaluate the performance of antigen testing when used during an emerging outbreak. Two specimens were collected from all residents and staff three times over a 13-day period. Trained laboratory scientists tested one swab on site using a rapid antigen test and the other was sent to the CDC for RT-PCR and virus culture reference testing. The researchers found that overall, the antigen test was less sensitive than RT-PCR, but it performed well in identifying early infections and specimens with replication-competent virus, that is, culture positive. Further, consensus test analysis of individuals with positive results And more than one test suggested that repeated testing produced similar positive agreement for antigen testing compared with RT-PCR, even in asymptomatic persons. According to the authors, these data suggest that early and frequent antigen testing during a SARS-CoV-2 outbreak may be an effective strategy for identifying infectious people with the greatest potential to transmit the virus. Next is a new policy paper from the American College of Physicians that aims to improve the existing health information privacy framework and expand similar privacy guardrails in which physicians have practiced for decades to entities that are not currently governed by privacy laws and regulations. Technological advancements and ongoing efforts to improve access to and exchange of valuable health information will undoubtedly help improve the U.S. healthcare system. However, these advancements have led to other challenges around privacy protections for personal health information that is generated and collected both within and outside of traditional healthcare settings. To maintain trust within the patient-physician relationship, these challenges must be addressed through establishing comprehensive health information privacy and security protections that are transparent, understandable, adaptable, and enforceable. The policy principles were drafted to build upon ACP Health Information Privacy Policy for the evolving digital health landscape. The policy paper details six principles. I encourage you to go to analyst.org to read about them in detail. Current new material also includes two American College of Physicians clinical practice guidelines and their accompanying systematic evidence reviews. The first clinical guideline from the American College of Physicians focuses on the appropriate use of -of point-of-care ultrasound, or POCUS, for patients with acute dyspnea in emergency departments or inpatient settings. Acute dyspnea is a common symptom that contributes to more than 1 million emergency room visits each year. Based on low to moderate quality evidence, ACP suggests that it may be reasonable to use POCUS in addition to standard diagnostic procedures When there is diagnostic uncertainty in patients with acute dyspnea in emergency department or inpatient settings, the standard diagnostic approach to identify the underlying causes of acute dyspnea involves taking the patient history, conducting a physical examination, and ordering diagnostic testing such as laboratory tests, chest or cardiac imaging, and electrocardiography. Evidence was inconclusive to make a recommendation for or against using POCUS as a replacement for the standard diagnostic approach in patients with acute dyspnea. In recent years, the use of POCUS as a potential diagnostic tool has increased due to its increased availability. Physicians trained to use POCUS can perform it in real time at the patient bedside to possibly improve diagnostic performance when used in addition to standard clinical examinations. The rationale to add POCUS to the standard diagnostic pathway is largely based on diagnostic accuracy studies and encompasses several considerations. POCUS increased the proportion of correct diagnoses by 32% when used in addition to the standard diagnostic pathway, and the test accuracy of standard diagnostic testing with the addition of POCUS is better than with the standards alone. However, the test accuracy varies according to the likelihood of underlying diseases, the experience of the person using POCUS, and the setting in which it is used. The second ACP clinical practice guideline provides recommendations for the appropriate use of high-flow nasal oxygen in hospitalized patients for initial or post-extubation management of acute respiratory failure. ACP's guideline is based on the best available evidence on the benefits and harms of high-flow nasal oxygen taken in the context of costs and patient values and preferences. The target patient population is adult patients with acute respiratory failure treated in a hospital setting, including emergency departments, hospital wards, immediate step-down units, and intensive care units. High-flow nasal oxygen therapy is a relatively new type of non-invasive respiratory support that has been gaining widespread use for hospitalized patients in recent years. It involves the delivery of warm and humidified oxygen at a flow higher than the patient's inspiratory flow via small nasal cannula. The purported benefits of high-flow nasal oxygen compared to conventional oxygen therapy and high-flow systems and non-invasive ventilation include improved patient comfort, compliance, and physiological advantages, and it can be used as respiratory support in critically ill patients for a number of indications, including respiratory failure or support post-extubation. For the management of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure in the hospitalized adults, ACP suggests clinicians use high-flow nasal oxygen rather than non-invasive ventilation. The evidence showed demonstrable improvement in clinically meaningful outcomes, including a large reduction in mortality, modest reduction in intubations, and in-hospital acquired pneumonia, as well as an improvement in patient comfort. Additionally, the guideline committee considered that most patients can use high-flow nasal oxygen, and there are usually no contraindications unless related to issues with fitting the nasal cannula. In hospitalized adults with post-extubation acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, ACP suggests clinicians use high-flow nasal oxygen rather than conventional oxygen therapy. In this population, evidence showed that high-flow nasal oxygen may reduce intubation slightly and may improve patient comfort compared to conventional therapy, and that high-flow nasal oxygen may not perform worse than conventional therapy with regard to all-cause mortality, hospital-acquired pneumonia, and length of ICU stay. The guideline committee notes that more research is needed to identify which patients are most likely to benefit from high-flow nasal oxygen, particularly by type of acute respiratory failure, as evidence was insufficient on patients with hypercapnia. None of the included studies compared high-flow nasal oxygen with non-invasive ventilation, or conventional oxygen therapy for acute respiratory failure in the setting of post-lung transplantation, pulmonary embolism, pulmonary arterial hypertension, or asthma. COVID-19 and related treatments were not part of the guideline. On April 27th, we also published the eighth update of a living systematic review on the risks and impacts of angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers on SARS-CoV-2 infection in adults. Previously, this living review had concluded with sufficient evidence that these medications do not increase the risk of contracting SARS-CoV-2 infection. This update concludes that continuation of these medications by persons with SARS-CoV-2 infection also does not increase the severity of infection. The update identified five planned or in-process trials evaluating ACE or ARB initiation in COVID-19 treatment, none of which have results available to date. On May 4th, Annals published a commentary that suggests that more extensive use of minimally invasive non-endoscopic tests for Barrett's esophagus screening could impact early detection and prevention of esophageal adenocarcinoma. This is important because Barrett's esophagus is often asymptomatic. Barrett's esophagus may progress to esophageal adenocarcinoma through the development of low- and high-grade dysplasia. Endoscopic treatment for dysplasia can reduce the risk for progression to cancer, and endoscopic treatment of early-stage esophageal cancer significantly increases chances of long-term survival. Endoscopic screening for Barrett's esophagus in patients with chronic reflux and other risk factors followed by endoscopic surveillance is recommended by professional societies, but it is invasive and costly, and asymptomatic patients are missed by screening. As such, the authors suggest that a paradigm shift in strategies for Barrett's esophagus screening and early detection of dysplasia is needed. Minimally invasive non-endoscopic esophageal sampling devices currently in development are showing promise for early detection and could help to overcome the challenges associated with endoscopy. Among these, the best studied include string-attached, capsule-enclosed, compressed spherical species of polyurethane foam that deploy in the stomach five minutes after swallowing, and a balloon that is inflated after swallowing and is inverted and withdrawn via an attached cord. These devices provide esophageal cytology samples, which can be analyzed for biomarkers associated with Barrett's esophagus and esophageal adenocarcinoma, such as methylated DNA markers. These swallowable esophageal cell collection devices can be administered by a nurse in the office setting with procedure times less than 10 minutes, and they do not require sedation. According to the authors, encouraging progress in the non-endoscopic detection of Barrett's esophagus will potentially lead to more complete identification of those at risk for esophageal adenocarcinoma, and when paired with improved dysplasia detection and risk prognostication, could lead to meaningful advances in esophageal adenocarcinoma outcomes. Also published on Analyst.org on May 4th is a History of Medicine article, that provides context to the debate over the appropriate use of mechanical ventilation in the treatment of patients with COVID-19. The author notes the debate that broke out over acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS and COVID-19 at the beginning of the pandemic was the product of increasing dependence on high technologies in the hospital. By learning the history of these technologies, clinicians can understand how diagnoses and treatments came to be and what unhelpful questionable or obsolete assumptions those technologies may carry with them. The value of manual positive pressure-treated ventilation was first noted during the polio epidemic of 1952. This treatment dramatically improved mortality rates and paved the way for widespread use of mechanical ventilators and the expansion of intensive care units over the next decade and beyond. While the ventilators aided healing in patients with some conditions, they also contributed to the emergence of ARDS as it is recognized and treated today. By the 1980s, several researchers began to argue for the existence of a phenomenon known as ventilator-induced lung injury, which seemed to be an inevitable consequence of the treatment. If the ventilator had brought ARDS into existence, it had done the same for ventilator-induced lung injury. In the early 1990s, the formal definition of ARDS was revised to begin clinical trials of ventilatory strategies to avoid ventilator-induced lung injury. Of note, the new definition, which emphasized oxygen levels, may have encouraged early intubation of COVID-19 patients despite still having compliant, flexible lungs, likely making ventilation a poor treatment choice. While historical knowledge does not settle the debate, it does provide valuable context. The authors suggest that this awareness might help scientists take a fresh look at this perplexing syndrome and encourage a more open-minded and less defensive discussion. Additional new material includes the latest Annals on Call podcast. In this episode, Dr. Bob Center interviews Dr. Terry Schanefeld about the frustration that results when different organizations provide conflicting clinical guidelines on the same clinical condition. We also have two new Annals Graphic Medicine articles. One addresses the worries that sometimes flood our brains as we try to fall asleep, and the second provides poignant depictions of the social impact of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Finally, there is the latest issue of ACP Journal Club. Go to annals.org for summaries of recent articles rated to be of high clinical relevance and high methodologic quality by McMaster University's evidence-based medicine team. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to annals.org to delve into some of the new material I've highlighted here. Stay well. Keep encouraging your colleagues, patients, friends, family, and everyone you encounter to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.